the most important advice that I can give is try to work in something that you're passionate about. Because if you can do that, then you can always find enjoyment in your employment. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to music management veteran, Paul Rosenberg, who famously became Eminem's manager and recently the CEO of record label giant Def Jam. Paul describes his humble beginnings as a pre-med student and how he experienced a 180 turn into a profession that will change his life forever. He talks about the risks of starting his own management company, insights into what he did different to stand out from the crowd, and a behind the scenes of what led his company to skyrocketing success. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoy this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Paul, for joining on today's show. I really appreciate you taking the time. First question I have for you is, how did you become a manager and become interested in music? Well, I've been a fan of music since I was a little kid, you know, back in the day, buying 45s and 12-inch records and paying attention to what's going on in pop culture initially and pop radio. And then uh, along came rap music and saw Sugar Hill 12-inch and sort of got knocked on the head with it and haven't been the same since. So, you know, just obsessed with music and particularly focused in hip-hop. Originally, I thought that I wanted to go to college to become a doctor, which doesn't jive with anything I just said, but I was young. Started off pre-med and couldn't hack chemistry, uh, thankfully, and figured, well, I got to do something. I figured I was fairly smart, so uh, I wanted to maybe work towards a postgraduate degree and had a bunch of people in my family who were lawyers, but I didn't want to be lawyers like they were, so I figured maybe there's a way to be a lawyer and apply it towards what I'm passionate about. I thought that perhaps maybe I would do entertainment law, which is a pretty broad term, but at the time it was a a good direction to start walking towards. By the time I got into law school, it narrowed it down to music law, and I thought that I wanted to be a music lawyer. So I started there, worked my way towards trying to get to that goal, but then along the way found that maybe I was interested in doing something else, uh, still using the sort of discipline and strength that I had gained from being a law student practicing law for a couple years and apply it towards uh, other things that I was more passionate about doing. Um, And it just happened to work out that management was the way to do that. And when I say that, you know, found things that I was better at doing, find things that I was better at doing, I mean that my strengths don't necessarily lie sitting behind a desk drafting and and um, having phone calls with other lawyers all day long necessarily. I found that my strengths were much more leaning towards working with the industry and in particular somewhat more on the creative side. So I found that management gave me an opportunity to do those things and it just so happened that Eminem at the time uh, was going through a couple different management changes. I had started off as his lawyer, had been his lawyer since, since 1997 or so, and said, hey, listen, you know, these other guys who are trying out haven't worked. We've been doing a lot of stuff together, and the stuff that I'm involved in with you has reached far beyond just being your lawyer. What do you think about me giving a shot at being your manager? And he was definitely uh, open to it and excited about it, and so it started there. And initially, I thought that I was going to be a lawyer and a manager, right? Because I had worked so hard, you know, spent spent seven years in college and had a big student loan debt and passed the New York bar. And I wasn't just about to go walk away from it as talented as Marshall was just, just because I thought I wanted to give management a world. So I had my feet in both areas for a while. 
And then Marshall's career got so crazy that I just sort of got wrapped up in it and, and um, opened up a management company uh, and felt that, you know, if I need to, I can always go back to practicing law. But this is really working and I really like it and I'm really passionate about it. And let me give this a shot. And were, were your parents, were your, was your family, were they like, what are you doing, Paul? You just spent seven years in school. Is that, was that a really scary moment to say, all right, I'm going to quit my job and do management full time? Or was it kind of, uh, did you de-risk it in any way? Yeah, they were they were scared in this in the sense that they didn't really understand what it was. And up until even a few years ago, my mother would still say, oh, yes, my son's M&M's lawyer. Because she didn't know what manager meant and it didn't have any sort of natural meaning to her and frankly, any sort of level of prestige in her mind, right? So I was still his, his lawyer to all the rest of her friends and family. But and ultimately, she, she learned about it. And uh, I think, you know, my parents were supportive in the sense that they knew that it was going to take risk to get to this pretty lofty goal that I had, um, which was, you know, being successful working in the music industry. And, you know, a lot of people want to do that and think it's sexy and want to give it a shot. And especially back then, it was way more closed off than it is now because there wasn't really access to it at all. That the gatekeepers and the guardians were real back then, right? You couldn't post something on YouTube and uh, SoundCloud and get your own following and flip the bird to everybody. You had to go through the very few doors that were there and try to knock your way in. Yeah, there was definitely some of that. And, you know, there was a little bit of trepidation on their part, but they knew that I wasn't a loose cannon and that I was pretty measured in my uh, decisions and behavior. So they believed in me. I'm sure your day-to-day and your duties now are a little bit different than they were in 1997. What was it like managing Eminem in 1997? Well, I was everything. Um, I didn't have a staff. And remember, I was his lawyer and his manager. Eventually, I got an assistant, but it was really just me. But then being out with him, I turned into everything. I was tour manager. I was I was limo driver. I was security because I happened to be a big guy. So sometimes I would have to, you know, fill fill that role and push people out of the way. And, you know, I was uh, his his psychiatrist and, and, and counselor. And I was, uh, I was all the things that um, I'm now managing other people to help us um, do with him. But I had to take it all on myself. There. They're usually like one or two really important things that matter. What were those back in the day we started working with Eminem? In terms of his career or in terms of our relationship or both? Both. Well, in terms of our relationship, the thing that mattered was trust. Uh, and especially when, when he started to gain some success, you know, I was nobody. And he was he was becoming the, the, the rock star. So I had to hang on for dear life. And if I didn't have his trust and, and loyalty, then, you know, I would have been, um, you know, back in Detroit probably working at a, at a, at a law firm. So it was really fortunate that I found somebody that was so trustworthy and loyal and and I you know gave the same back of course but that was one element of it and and the other element of it is we you know we had to be we had to believe in ourselves and be pretty bold because especially back then we're talking you know 97 98 when he was breaking um, it was not the sort of best idea on a path to success to be a white rapper necessarily um, now it's changed a lot and there's a, a lot of people who've had success at it and um, it's it's a lot more common but back then it was not so we we had to be um, bold and 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 believe in ourselves too what was it like back then I'm sure a lot of the listeners today are in their 20s they were probably five or six or seven years old and it was coming coming around what, what was being a white rapper like in 1997 it was just rare it didn't it didn't exist 
Um, you know, there was just a few attempts at being uh, being a white, uh, well, being a rapper and had just ha- having to happen to be white. And nobody really did it in the way that Marshall ended up doing it. I mean, the Beastie Boys obviously had a tremendous amount of success and they were around pre-Eminem. Uh, there was a group called Third Base who was, who was going down the credibility route and, and they were accepted but didn't have a tremendous amount of commercial success. And then there was, um, you know, the Vanilla Eye and uh, he didn't help out matters much because he just uh, wasn't as authentic as, as I think people had, had once thought he was. So we had uh, not that much to build off of. And because of those things, it was a tough road to go down. What were what were some of the things that you did to get attention and to you know make yourself, make both of y'all known? Back in well, Marshall is, is obviously incredibly talented and it really was just his talent that won in the end. Um, and the things that we did were the kind of things that people did back then to, to gain recognition. And in his, in his case, he also, aside from being really good at writing songs and performing, he also happened to be a really good freestyler and battler. So what we would do is get him in, into as many battles as possible and get him in, on, in as many opportunities on, you know, local community radio or, or um, even FM stations eventually to be able to freestyle because that really demonstrated and showed his talent, both of those things. So we would look for opportunities to do those things. And were there any big stunts or big things where you're like, oh, why did you do that or don't do that? And he kind of pushed back and said, no, I, I need to do this. This is something that'll that'll get attention or make me more known or, uh, you know, the fans want to hear this. Was there anything like that that came about? He, he was just fearless in, in terms of what he said and, and the sort of stances he took on things. Um, he was never really just uh, somebody who wanted to conform or fit anybody's idea of what a a rapper should or shouldn't be able to do and say. So for him, it was coming from him internally and how he uh, saw himself as an artist and the kind of um, things he wanted to do. And the, the one thing about Marshall that, that people didn't realize early on, and some people still don't realize, is the more you react to him push, pushing your buttons, the more he's going to push them. He just gets, it, it just gets him going and, and, and makes him go further. So having that sort of built-in system, um, I think, helped, uh, you know, gain people's attention. What were some of the biggest buttons that he pressed? Uh, you know, he was just controversial. He, he said what was on his mind and spoke um, spoke in the language that he uh, believed he should be allowed to speak in and felt that it was it was his right to have, have his freedom of speech and creativity. What do you think if, you know, something that's controversial today that, that won't be tomorrow? Language has is, is gotten pretty extreme, right? And what, what people are willing to say and the, the things that they think are acceptable. And uh, I hope it goes back the other way because I think it's gone too far, but this sort of I feel like there's been a big backlash against political correctness um, and, and it, obviously our our president is leading the way on that uh, but I, I feel like more and more people are just going to start saying whatever's on their minds and I'm not saying that's good or bad um, but but I think that um, it's just going to continue so the, in, in answer to the question I, I think it's not necessarily stuff that people are saying or doing now that's going to be become the norm but I think more and more towards that sort of uh, potentially offensive language and behavior uh, that stuff's just going to be I guess more accepted um, until things maybe swing back the other way one day and do you have any uh, stunts or any big things plan that are that are kind of crossing the line with any of the artists that you're working with today you know uh, obviously i can't really reveal stuff that we're working on but i, I think that you know I, i've always been drawn towards artists that elicit a strong reaction from people and whether it's good or bad i'd, I'd rather have people hate something than not get a reaction to it 
or you know, obviously we want them to love it, but hate is is a, or, or negative reaction is better than no reaction at all. So because of what I'm drawn towards uh, and working with, I, I always um, find myself in situations where there definitely is art or shenanigans or behavior that people are reacting to. And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from Marshall? Over the last 10, 20 years, you know, I guess it, it, it really goes back to loyalty. That that you know, you you're only going to go so far with the people that uh, you choose to partner up and work with. You're only going to go as far as as your relationship lets you. And if if there's not some serious level of loyalty and commitment to one another, uh, then you're wasting your time. So I think that I learned how important that is for sure. It- is there a science to that, or is that just kind of like a gut feeling? No, there's no science to it. It's, it, it, it's a gut feeling, and just you know, sort of, sort of being able to tell the kind of person that you're working with, and um, you know, it's just, it's just human instinct, I guess, and, and the ability to to filter through what what is real and what's not. I guess when when fights do arise or challenges do arise, what are some things that you to handle kind of tough situations or hard situations? For me, the one thing that I have always told myself when it comes to my clients is I'm never going to be a yes, and I don't care how bad a client may react to my opinion or news that I'm going to give them or something that I think they should do, it's my job to set forth whatever that thing might be. Um, I've never allowed myself to get to a place where I said, oh, you know what? This is going to be so difficult to have this conversation or tell someone that you think they're doing something wrong or that you don't like what they're doing or that something isn't working that you just sort of look the other way and and go along with whatever that thing might be. So I've just really dedicated myself to, to not not being a yes man and keeping my honesty and opinion and efforts towards what I think is in the artist's best interest. And what would you say your artists or Marshall, other people that have worked with you, what do you think they've learned most from you? That's a really interesting question. I, you'd have to ask them. Hopefully they would they would say that they've learned what a fantastic guy I am. <laughs> I like that. And, and when you were in just becoming a music manager, and even today, do you have mentors? Do you have people that were in the industry that were kind of helping you, giving you their playbook? Here are the things to do. Here are things not to do. Or is it all all you? Yeah, sure. You find people along the way who give you guidance and help you. You know, really early on, I didn't really have that. I sort of found my own way. But I partnered up with some people throughout my career who you know I still work with and still talk to. And and uh, you know those those are the sort of people when you have an issue that you really just can't figure out or you need some some bigger advice you go to. Who are those people for you? Well, you know, Jimmy Iving's been a big mentor of mine. Always been there for me and, and helped me through through a lot of difficult scenarios. So I would see he's definitely up there and, you know, moving into my new role at Def Jam, Lucian Grange is going to be a big help for me there. And um, it was an attorney that uh, is, is Marshall's attorney that I still work with uh, a lot who gave me a, a shot early on named Theo Settlemeyer. Um, and he's a, he's been a big help for me along the way as well. And do you have any routines today, morning, afternoon, or evening, things that you do every single day to, to help you be more productive? Yeah, I, I got to have my alone time. I have two younger kids and, you know, my wife has to get up with them really early every day. And I am a more of a night owl. So my alone time's at night after everybody else in the house is asleep and I can just sort of, you know, reflect and think about what has happened throughout the day. And it can be something as simple as just, you know, turning on a game and zoning out or, uh, you know, having a cigar or, you know, having a conversation with. Uh, somebody over the phone, but I need to be alone in my space to decompress and keep myself sane. Uh, and that's how I do it. A minimum amount of time you do every single night or is it just... No, there's no minimum amount of time, but it's, you know, it's at least an hour, usually, usually two or three. 
Got it. And what would be your advice to young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives? They might be in school right now. They might just have graduated. They're trying to figure things out. What would your advice be to those people? The most important advice that I can give is try to work in something that you're passionate about. Because if you can do that, then you can always find enjoyment in your employment and enjoyment in your career. Because there's going to be elements about it, even through all the bad stuff that you don't like, there's going to be elements about it that you do. And if you can find a way to work your passions into a career, I think overall you'll be a much happier person. What are some ineffective things you see younger people do as they are just starting their careers? Or here are the things you shouldn't do. Here's some urgent but not important thing that you're wasting your time with. I think that, you know, a lot of times I don't see people putting the work in that they need to. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who are, you know, coming out of uh, college or, or grad school or whatever, and they're expecting to have their name on the marquee right out of the gate and have this, you know, sense of uh, entitlement that is just baffling for me. So I think people need to realize they have to put the work in uh, to get their name on the door, to get the equity that they're looking for, and to get themselves in a position where respected and, and treated as, as a peer. Like that. And, and what would you say Paul Rosenberg's biggest challenges are, top three challenges are right now? I need to figure out a way to make the new company that I'm going into return to its form that it was created in by the guys who created it. And, you know, I'm specifically talking about Def Jam and I want to figure out how to go back to the blueprint and make that label the thing that everybody got so passionate about in the first place. So that's that's one of my challenges. The second challenge is, you know, I'm going to be merging companies, right? So I've got my, my management company in Shady with, with Marshall, and then we're going to have Def Jam. So i got to figure out how all that's going to work together in terms of staffing and, and, and physical locations. And then, um, you know, the third biggest challenge is figuring out when and how we're going to get Eminem's next album out. And I can't tell you the answer to that because <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess technology is constantly changing your business. How do you decide when and how to adapt based off of technology? You don't decide when and how to adapt. You just have to adapt. You, you have to figure out what's, what's working to propel the industry forward and become that. So, you know, for me, I had always seen this coming for a really long time, the place that we're in now, and I had always hoped for it. So I was mentally prepared for uh, a world of streaming. And I, for one, am very happy that we're here. It's awesome. And, and what would you say drives you? You've had you know, tons of success. What What's driving you to continue to do more? The thing that drives me is the ability to take something that really is is small or unknown, um, and whether you know whether this is a you know an artist or uh, any kind of project or film or whatever the case may be, put a lot of work in, in, into helping create it, mold it, shape it. And, and get it ready for the world to take a look at and then having that thing have success. That's that's my, um, I guess, biggest pleasure from, from doing what I do is the, that satisfaction of having something that you believe in um, and put a lot of time and effort into become something that other people really appreciate, admire, and respect. What would your advice be to people who want to work for Paul Rosenberg or work for Def Jam? People have to figure out a way how to, to get on the radar. And the best way to get on, on the radar is to prove yourself by having success. So don't just go to some place or somebody and say, hey, look at me. I'm so great. You should hire me. Go to them and say, hey, look what I've been working on. Look at, look at what I've been able to do. Look what we've been able to build. Look what the success that I've had doing X, Y, and Z. That's the stuff that's going to impress me. I have two or three more questions. Um, when was the last time you or Marshall came 
close to crossing the line or, or cross the line? I'm not sure. You know, it's it's not really for me to decide what, where the line is, but I think the last time that, you know, people reacted to a lot of what he did, he released a freestyle that was about, I think, seven minutes, eight minutes long last fall, uh, right before the elections that uh, voiced his opinion about the elections. And people reacted pretty strongly to that. Some people say he crossed the line with it, I guess. And one of the biggest challenges and questions that people have wrote in asking, you know, how do I build a network? You know, they're not in New York, they're not in San Francisco, they're in school and kind of all over middle America and, and North America. What would be your advice to those to those kids? Well, they're, they're in a great position because they have the ability to create a virtual network. We didn't have that at all. So there's many ways that that can happen and many shape forms that that can take shape in. The world is at their fingertips, just in, in, in their mobile devices and their laptops um, and whatever other iPad, who knows. But they have access to, to be able to create and forge relationships with people that they may never meet physically, but that they can still count on and relate to. I mean, you know, even when it comes to artists um, making music, there's so much collaborating that's done online now with people that, you know, live on the other side of the world that may never meet each other, but they have the ability to do that whereas before not only would you not be able to meet the person in Timbuktu but you wouldn't be able to create anything with them at all because you'd have to be in the studio with them and that didn't happen so they're they're in great great shape and I don't want to hear any whining about it <laughs> I agree um, and last question do you have any favorite books or podcasts that you're currently reading or that you reread often what would you say that the book that you would want to give most would be? I've been listening to Reply All a little bit lately. Uh, I like that. The Reply All podcast and then my friend Stretch and Bob Vito just started a podcast with NPR that I really like. My buddy Elliot Wilson has the Rap Radar podcast. That's always fun. You know, there's there's those. I, I check out Joe Rogan depending upon who the guest is and everybody's listened to Serial so that's definitely worth checking out. But S-Town also, I like that. I even listened to the Richard Simmons with the Where's Richard Simmons podcast because it was just so the idea of it to me was so absurd that I had to listen to it and I found myself drawn into it any favorite books there's a book called The Big Payback it was written by a guy named Dan Charnas uh, C-H-A-R-N-A-S and it's basically a very sort of inside view of the history of the business of, of hip hop and, and the culture of hip hop and it's very detailed and it, it's, it goes into a lot of depth um, and it's not a short read but it's fascinating extraordinarily well done and anybody interested in our industry, I would suggest going and reading that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Paul. All right, buddy. All right, thanks. All right, thanks, Paul. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Paul Rosenberg. Thank you so much again, Paul, for coming on the show. I'm sure for people who are currently stuck in fields and looking to change but don't have the courage or don't know how to, I'm sure it was very reassuring listening to Paul's story and how he went from pre-med student to becoming a music mogul. To any aspiring entrepreneurs out there, it was also great listening to him talking about how he risked it all and what he did in order to make sure the reward outweighed the probability of failure exponentially. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter, at Corey. Thank you once again for listening. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday, so stay tuned, and we'll see you next week on Off Record.